0: Good evening, everyone, and welcome uh, to the start of the 17th annual uh, season of the Faith and Life Lecture Series. Uh, I'm Pastor Tim Westermeyer, and uh, on behalf of St. Philip the Deacon, which curates these talks, it's my privilege and pleasure to welcome you here this evening. Um, I always do like to ask as we begin, uh, who has not ever been to a Faith and Life event in the past? All right, excellent, good. A special welcome to all of you. I'm glad you're here. Um, over the 17 years of this season, or the series, 16 years, I guess, of the series, we have, those of you who have been following us know we have cast a broad net in terms of the types of speakers we brought in. The point of the series is to bring in folks who are Christians who can talk about how Christianity informs their everyday work. So we've had uh, authors, lawyers, doctors, politicians, um, on and on, teachers and some theologians, not a lot of them, but um, uh, tonight we are privileged to welcome someone who, among other distinctions, uh, is now the person who flew in the closest to his speaking engagement time. uh, (laughs) Which was not, it was not his fault. He he worked, he was very conscientious about getting tickets that would work and give him some backup plans, but he flew out of uh, Denver today and there was a little bit of snow, so I was, his plane I think touched down right at about five o'clock and I was slightly worried about getting him, but here we are, so yay. Um, His bio, you can read the the short bio we have. Um, He spent 20 uh, years doing international humanitarian work and has somehow become an expert on this thing called the Enneagram, uh, which he has a book about, The Sacred Enneagram, which you can purchase following the talk. While we were driving here, though, I did ask him the question I always ask all of our speakers, which is, is there anything kind of quirky or, I don't know, different that I could talk about? And one of the things he said is he's not a big fan of his bio, so he wants to rewrite his bio, so he's working on that. Um, He also said that as a child he wanted to sell exotic fish. And it was clear as we ordered a Jimmy John's him tonight that he does not like American condiments, like <laughs> mayonnaise and ketchup and mustard, and he also doesn't like pickles. But we are delighted to have him here. Will you help me welcome Chris Huertz?
1: <laughs> well, good evening. Uh, I, uh, I do want to apologize, um, I only shaved the upper half of my face um, in your bathroom here because I are going to shaving cream, um, <laughs> but I'm just super duper glad I made it, and uh, so grateful that y'all came out, and so thankful to be included in your community's rhythm, so huge honor, and appreciate your hospitality, appreciate how gracious everyone on your staff and team has been in, in making this possible, and 17 years, I mean, congratulations to y'all to actually stick with something as meaningful um, and as substantive as as this. And also 17, it's a prime number, so rock and roll for prime numbers. (laughs) All right. Um, (laughs) Oh, dear. Uh, So my name is Chris Hewitz, and uh, I I live in Omaha, Nebraska. Um, Just to give a little bit of context, um, I I grew up um, on the northwest side of the city. My parents were broke. So looks like some of you remember uh, the 70s. Um, My mom and dad were 19 when they got married, um, did not go to university, and uh, were good Catholic folks, and so started having a lot of kids. And by the time I was 10, I was the oldest. I was the oldest of six. Because they didn't go to university, my my, my parents never got the promotions at their their places of employment that they wanted, right? It was always the 21-year-old with their undergraduate degree or the 23-year-old with their graduate degree. And I I actually think there was something humiliating about that um, specifically for my father. And so my parents, I assume, thinking because they did not have education, put me and my, my siblings into private schools that they couldn't afford. And uh, by the time I was in grade 11, between my mom and dad, they were working seven jobs. So my dad slugged 40 hours a week at a sales job that he didn't particularly love, come home for a quick dinner. And you remember this, right? Fish sticks, grilled cheese. Um, sometimes like, we'd throw some ground beef in the pot, and make a chili. Uh, and then he'd go to a telemarketing b- building where he was the janitor. And from there, he would go to the quick shop and work till 3 a.m. And so sometimes in high school, when I wanted to see my father, I'd go get a piece of pizza and a Slurpee um, in the middle of the night. And that's really how amazing they were. Oh, yeah, my father's fourth job, of course, on the weekends was officiating whatever high school sport was in season, right? So my mom and dad worked. They worked really, really hard. Um, Two of my siblings were adopted. And my sister um, was biracial. And so, you know, little kids are beautiful and innocent and and, and full of wonder, but can also be a little mean. And I remember my sister being teased and being called things by, by decent human beings. But, you know, as, as the older brother, we, we, we internalized this. We took this on. My, my little brother had, had experienced a lot of trauma actually. And uh, the trauma he experienced sort of played out in how he acted out that pain. And uh, he ended up being cycled through all sorts of boys schools and institutions and, correctional facilities, and so it wasn't, um, it wasn't a terrible childhood. I had a, actually an amazing childhood, but the so-called working poor were my parents. The so-called racially other was my sister. The so-called street child was my brother, and all these ways that we sort of stack labels up on people, and especially the ways that we over-identify them with the areas where they're exploited, where they suffer, where they're marginalized, was, was my family, and you know this, when we look back on our lives, like hindsight we say is 2020. Um, it was as if I didn't have a choice in terms of the work that I did. Well, I, 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 I ended up going to university while I was in school. I spent a year in Jerusalem, and I was studying there in the Middle East. I was studying Phoenician and Aramaic and Ugaritic, like super interesting stuff. And... Uh, after classes, like, I would, my, my school's right there on Mount Zion. After classes, I'd go down to the Hinnom Valley and the Kidron Valley, and I'd kick a soccer ball around with these internally displaced Palestinian kids whose parents were also working six, seven days a week, 10, 14 hours a day, but these kids weren't in school, these kids didn't have shoes, these kids were undernourished, and, and something changed in my perspective of what this sort of concept of poverty meant, right? Yeah, my parents were broke, like... It was really hard. And they really, really, really sacrificed for us. But man, there's always something on the table, right? I always went to school. And, and these kids' stories was, was, was very, very different. And, and so it made me reconsider what I was actually studying in sacred texts and, and what I was seeing in, in, in scripture. And, and, it, and, it, and, it, and it started to change, actually, my perspective of everything. And I think of it like this. I, uh, I lived in a little tiny town in central Kentucky for several years. And there were literally, like the sign, they were so proud of it, 4,217 people. Well, one day, um, my wife and I meet this couple um, who had been working in, in Malaysia, moved back to the States a couple years before that. We, we met them at church. And it was like, oh, man, this is really interesting. Your work sounds Fascinating, we'd love to hear more about it. And then, of course, you know what happens in a little town of 4,217 people? We actually bumped into them on the street the next day, and we bumped into them at the market a few days later. And it turns out like we, 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 we had memberships at the same places. And it was like, wait a second, I've probably seen you a hundred times in my life, but I didn't have a name, I didn't recognize you, I couldn't identify you, even in a small space. And, and I felt like that's what happened to me in Jerusalem. I felt like my soul, whole sort of concept of, of who are the oppressed, what is poverty, who are those that have been marginalized are, and how do we interact with that in, in the scriptures? And of course, I had always spiritualized it to contextualize it so that I could read myself into the stories, so that I could read myself into the meaning. But I started making friends with and meeting people who were really suffering, who were exploited. So finished school and I quickly moved to South India. I joined this little organization, this little group of angsty, pissed Gen Xers, these activists who rubbed some Bible on our social ambitions and, and, and thought we were going to serve the Lord um, by, by, by healing the, the, the pain and, 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 and setting what had been broken fixed and, and setting it right. So I actually helped in in the early to mid-1990s start South Asia's first pediatric AIDS care home, right? So those eight countries back then didn't have a place for children who were born HIV positive or orphaned because their parents had died from AIDS. And at a time in my life when I should have been going to more delivery rooms, celebrating the, 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 the birth of my friend's children, I was at the gravesite of little kids that we had found that were abandoned in government hospitals and left to die because they were sick, and it was overwhelming, and it was too much. A few years after starting this home, I, I, I married Felina, my wife. We moved back to India, and this is where we thought that we would be living for the indefinite, unforeseeable future, but the, the, the guy who started our little organization resigned there was just six or seven of us involved, and so the board called me up and said, "Hey, we want you to come back to the states and and, and run this thing." And and Flynn and I were just like, "I don't know if that's really the play here, right?" But we 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 we, we prayed on it. We considered it. We 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 we, we sort of asked ourselves, "What would it look like if some of these things that had been simmering in our hearts for justice for hope could be replicated in the hearts of other folks?" And so we said yes, and we hit the hard reset button on this little organization, and, and, and really very quickly, just in, in the course of a few years, we built this out to 350 people working in, in 15 countries. And we were focusing primarily on anti-trafficking efforts, so helping women and children primarily who had been trafficked into the commercial sex industry. We were in uh, Sierra Leone during the Blood Diamonds conflict, helping little kids who had been conscripted to fight in, in civil war. Our communities lived in the neighborhoods. We were in the refugee camps, in the red light areas, the, the, the slums. And, and, and this was all sort of rooted in solidarity. This was all incubated in community. And we did this as an ecumenical community. So we were Catholic and, and Protestant, Orthodox and, and Evangelical folks. We, we did this very devotionally as it was our act of worship. It was our way of embodying our prayer in the world. And it was incredible. Now, you know this, community, (laughs) we idealize it, we romanticize it, we fill this notion with with meaning, and then it becomes unsatisfying, and community, the very place where we think we're going to find our our sense of self, community, the very place where we think we're going to be healed, is typically, and, and maybe for a lot of us, the place where we experience our deepest wounds, where we've actually been betrayed. And so community was, was actually kind of becoming the distraction for our work, right? The hardest part of our work sometimes wasn't on the streets. It was around the table, working it out with folks that we thought were friends. And community, you, you can imagine, is, is taxing. And religious community, in, in particular, um, brings with it all sorts of problems, right? It's like we put the funk in dysfunction. So... <laughs> religious communities, we are terrible at handling transitions we, we don't let people go well right? community, you, you experience this in all of your relationships, your intimate relationships your families your, 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 your friendships, your, your communal groupings, you experience this idea that if you stay long enough there will be inevitable challenges and these are the reasons you leave and these are sometimes legitimate reasons to go but, man, in that community, we tried to look at these inevitable challenges, these strains and stressors in our relationships as, as, as potential gifts, as unexpected gifts. That Could we work through these together, and could it make us stronger? And so we were stubborn, and we slugged it out. And, 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 it, and it was a great run. And, and, and I was part of that community. I was part of that organization for, for 20 years. Well, the 20th anniversary of, of the organization we used to have this print journal, right? Like a magazine, like we'd send it out to 20-some thousand uh, subscribers. And uh, we wanted to, to send the 20th anniversary sort of print journal out as a, a simultaneous celebration, but but lament, honoring the good and hard work while simultaneously honoring those who had been lost. So I put a call out. I put a call out to these 15 communities around the world, and I said, hey, let's, let's do a memorial section. Let's name our friends. Let's name those who had been lost, who, who hadn't survived to, to celebrate 20 years with us. And as these names started to come in, um, I knew a lot of them, right? We were, we were, we were close. Um, I was at a lot of the funerals for, for, for many of these folks. Um, but it began to become more overwhelming than I could have imagined. And then by the end, um, when it was all, all sort of I sort of compiled there were over 700 women and children that, that our community had buried in 20 years. And when I used to say, look, we're living, hopefully, among the dying, like, I wasn't trying to be pithy, but when I realized and I saw the names, I saw the, 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 the gravity of the list, it, it took the breath out of me. And I think it was a, a sobering moment of realization that we'd been carrying a lot. We were young folks, maybe overdoing it in the wrong ways, trying to convince ourselves that we were doing something right. And, and this is very human. We all do a version of this. We clearly all project outside of ourselves what we don't want to contend with inside of ourselves. And we think we're actually helping when we're simply running from the yes and the first yes. We're simply running from not actually embracing and loving and holding ourselves with compassion. And, and when we think that we can do that somewhere else better, it catches up to us. And so when I look back on, on, on 20 years of that work, and it had caught up to me. I, I was, well, was bumping around on the bottom of life. I was exhausted. I was hurting myself. I was hurting my, my wife. I was hurting people in my community, and I needed a change. It's, it's, it's very typical Jungian, right? Like if we don't give ourselves over to transitions, our ego will carry us our screaming shadow and subconscious into the transitions we needed, well, I had to make my own. And when I look back, and when I look back on 20 years of the work, I I noticed there were three things that, that were very common and very chronic to what our effort team had looked like. And the first was, we were doing a better job of taking care of somebody else than we were ourselves. Now, Look, I imagine almost every person in this room is guilty of that at one point or another in your life. If you've had children, if you're an educator, if you're a social worker in healthcare, if you're basically a decent human being, you've probably cared for somebody better than you've cared for yourself. And you see what happens here. The lack of integrity, the lack of credibility of that catches up to us. Secondly. We were young people, and, 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 and you would, we would get these really dynamic folks saying yes to these compelling vocations of hope to show up, thinking they would stay in these neighborhoods for the next four or five, ten years, who knows, but inevitably what would happen is every eight, ten, twelve months, somebody would cycle out. It was too much, too hard. They weren't prepared to face their own shadows in community, let alone the, the suffering that they were experiencing on the streets. And that inability to practice stability was devastating for community, right? So we were exhausted of of saying hello and and welcoming folks in and then saying goodbye and grieving those goodbyes. But the third thing that, that, and of course this is predictable, the third thing that was, was really chronic in that community was a lot of us were teetering perpetually, teetering on the edge of burnout. And in fact, a lot of us did burn out. And when we burned out, it was bad. People left upset. They left angry. A lot of folks, when they left, burnt out, they even walked away from their faith. And I don't want to take that away from them, but my sense was their faith wasn't failing them in their vocational fidelity. It was that their beliefs couldn't hold up in the face of the suffering we were witnessing. Right? we know this, that that you don't have to believe the things that you put your faith in. That's actually contrary to even the essence and the substance of faith, because faith is making an option for the absurd. Faith is putting our hope in something that's unbelievable. But you see, we're even sort of leading with beliefs, Then our belief was our efforts would heal the world, right? So I hit my wall seven years ago, actually seven years ago last month. After hitting the hard reset again, my wife and I um, started a new little nonprofit, a little center um, for contemplative activism, honoring the investments that our teachers, um, the late Father Thomas Keating and Father Richard Rohr had had made in our lives. And what we wanted to do was basically sort of set up this, this sort of space for the activist soul. We wanted to basically make this sort of gift to people who want to be the midwives, to the new we, who want to help heal the world, who actually want to bring their faith into social engagement, but but simultaneously realize it needs to be rooted in a deep spirituality. And so what we wanted to do was introduce folks like that from all faiths and no faiths to the historic Christian contemplative tradition as a way of rooting our social engagement in the world, as a way of confessionally saying, could we just do good a little better? Because we're not gonna do it great we're still gonna mess it up. We're gonna bring the best and the worst of ourselves into it. And if we could just move the needle just a tiny bit through observation, and and I mean a kind of inner observation rooted in contemplation, what would that look like? What would it look like if there were resources for for myself and and my wife and my former community members to have not had to burn out in, in, in what we thought was good work? So what we do now is not sexy at all. Like it's super uninteresting. (laughs) My brothers are just like, wait, what? What is a center for contemplative activism, man? And yeah, like it's clumsy and it's full of jargon, but we're basically introducing folks to practices that are framed by solitude, silence, and stillness. And I think these three interior postures, solitude, silence, and stillness, are actually the corrections to what's out of control in our lives, right? So, solitude. We still work with a lot of young people, right? Um, so, your pastor, we, uh, our nonprofit for the last seven years, we, we host a, a spring, a summer, and a fall retreat at a little Benedictine monastery outside of Omaha. And, and, and we've sold every one of these out in seven years. We have long waiting lists. People fly in from 20 to 30 states every time. Well, the average age of our retreatants are, are, are usually somewhere between 34 and 37, right? And that kind of feels old to us because we work with a lot of young people. Um, but the young people we work with, you know this. Like they, they have four or five or six roommates. They're all smashed up in a house or they're bunking in an apartment or so they're sleeping on couches and, and they're almost never alone. When I go to the market, right, it's like... This thing is in front of me every second. And I'm even, if Lena, my wife is like, hey, can you get some soup? I'm like, shoot, there's 70 different chicken noodle soups. I'm paralyzed (laughs) by the options. I can't make a decision. Uh, Everything is happening in real time. I'm live tweeting like the game. We're never alone. We're always connected. Some of us are insulated and incubated in spaces where we actually can't find breathing room but a lot of us are still lonely and that loneliness catches us off guard well solitude teaches us to be present and in being present to ourselves to divine love we learn to be present to each other and the world silence right so it's the same thing If this isn't blowing up with Instagram notifications, texts, uh, voicemails, because I'm not going to answer a call, uh, I'm like, do you guys get reception here? Because we're addicted to these digital distractions. And I hate to say it, but like if we went out for for a coffee or a glass of wine, this probably would be on the table between us, even if we were having a deep heart-to-heart conversation. And what this is a symbol of and what this reminds us of is that we've lost the ability, the practice of of listening, right? So silence teaches us to listen. And again, it teaches us to listen to ourselves so that we can listen to the voice of love so that we can listen to one another. And then stillness, right? Oh, boy. We are an activist generation. We live in a cause-informed world. If I got on some of y'all's social media profiles, I imagine I would see the organizations that you support, the issues that break your heart, the the fights for justice that you get behind and rally behind. And that's great, actually. But you know this, when we are cause-driven, we turn the person who's exploited, those who've been marginalized, into the embodied face of an issue that we think is important to us, and it's further diminishing their humanity, and ours, actually, in that, We also know this, that history will not absolve us. The unintended harmful consequences of our best efforts in the world are paid for by someone else, right? So where I live in Omaha, right? For 17 years, Flea and I lived in this gorgeous little 1920s brown brick townhouse on North 33rd Street. And there are a lot of folks from the Omaha reservation who live in my neighborhood. And those folks primarily or generally are really broke to help folks pay electricity bills in the winter because their little kids are freezing cold. And I can't help but think of some of my, my friends in the neighborhood on, on, on trash day when we recycle and roll out our big containers full of our plastics and our papers and our glass and all of these things that we're actually sort of earmarking so that we can be stewards of the environment and heal the earth, right? And they're probably just saying, man, you sure consume a lot to save the world, don't you? I mean, it's our overconsumption looking back at us, right? The irony of tweeting the revolution on a device that requires a mineral to be mined in Central Africa that is so valuable that a war has been fought over it, that sexual violence has perpetuated the, 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 the brutalities and atrocities of the conflict. The the blood is on our hands, and history will not absolve us either. So stillness teaches us restraint. And in restraint, we actually learn the discernment for what proper engagement should look like, right? So solitude, silence, and stillness, these are the corrections well, it's out of control in our lives. And these are the interior postures that we bring into what we hold as our practice. All right? So that's what we're doing. And, and, and really, that's what I want to talk about tonight. All right? The, the, the sort of um, tagline was on how prayer heals the world. And here's the bummer, sorry. The punchline is, it, it doesn't. So that's kind of a bummer. <laughs> Now, I'm really glad that this is what we can talk about tonight, and and actually, I'm just going to reflect a little bit here for maybe the next 15, 20 minutes, and then kind of open this up into some conversation around it. Um, I'm really glad this is what we're talking about tonight, because most of my work right now is around the Enneagram, and actually, the the, the book there is aligning your Enneagram type with, with how you bring your contemplative practice into, you know, the addictions or the prisons of your personality, and if you don't know what the Enneagram is, chase me down. Uh, this, this is a brain bender. But it essentially shows you how your personality is essentially your ego set of coping addictions that you've wrapped up around a childhood wound so that you don't have to tell yourself the truth about who you really are. Okay? That's it. We would rather project the mythology of who we want to be than say yes to ourselves. Than, than to, to simply look inward and, and, and to show ourselves kindness and compassion acceptance and love but because we don't we're we're also creating problems in our relationships and in the world so how does prayer actually help that how does prayer help support the becoming of who we've always been the remembering of our soul's purpose reason for being that we've forgotten that we've been disconnected from that we've lost and I'll say this how prayer changes the world is it changes you I love it. My wife says this all the time. To the extent that we are transformed, the world will be transformed. And I wish I would have known that at the beginning of 20 years of humanitarian work. That it's not changing it outside of myself. It's starting inside of myself. But you see, the 20-something version of myself would have thought that was so narcissistic. That was so self-centered. How could I actually love myself first? So, let's talk about prayer. For a second, and, and when we talk about things that are just so much hardwired to our religious experience that we kind of have insider lingo and shorthand for, I actually like to step back and just start with the basics. And, and so what do we mean by prayer? And I think it's an important question for all of us to ask ourselves. What do we mean by prayer? What do we mean by prayer? See, how I grew up, prayer was a conversation that I was initiating. Prayer was generally me asking God for things that I didn't have, for things that I should probably want, for things that people in my life needed. For me, prayer was a conversation that I initiated asking for forgiveness, telling God what I thought about the divine. Prayer was sort of this collective experience where I would show up to an auditorium on a Sunday morning, And uh, it sort of played out like this, group karaoke for 20 minutes. Uh, They'd send some baskets around, we'd pay the cover, and we all knew what the cover was, 10%. And then we'd listen to somebody bump their gums at us for 20 to 40 minutes, lecture style, high five and walk on out of the room. And it was like, wow, that was so amazing, right? But no, that, that didn't work for me. Even our religious spaces, like it seems like your, your chairs here are, mo, are mo, we could move these around. And An old, old, uh, old Jewish guy, you've probably heard Peter Block speak or write before, says that even in our liturgical and educational institutional spaces, how the rooms are arranged is to colonize the mind. So like in the Catholic church where I went as a kid, yeah, those pews were bolted to the floor. There was no moving them. And even in the churches I grew up, it was a worshiping community of people that I sat shoulder to shoulder with, but the majority of them I saw the back of their heads. There was always someone elevated as if they were a religious expert, as if they had figured it out presenting, right? And so we kind of hijacked what we meant by prayer, at least in my, my socialization, at least in my religious community. And I have to think that God's probably just like, Seriously, man, I've heard you say all of these things. I get it. You don't have to say them anymore. And I wonder, right? I wonder what God's love languages are. Because I think one of them has probably got to be hangout. Could you just be quiet? I know you're sorry. You've told me a dozen times. Like, you've asked for this thing for years, and can you, can you take a hint? Could we just be together? And I think that's what was the important correction for me. That prayer isn't always a conversation around needs that I initiate. When we were introduced to contemplative practice by by Father Thomas Keating, it it quickly turned everything upside down for us. And and we very quickly began to realize that that prayer is a, a kind of abiding in the embrace of divine love. Now, Imagine there's a lot of you that have a practice, a daily practice, a, a weekly practice. But for how I grew up, this was all new to me. Like, in fact, if you would have thrown a question like, Hey, what's the difference between meditation or contemplation to me? I'd have been like, It's no difference, man. Because I had been taught to meditate on the scripture, meditate on fruits of the spirit, attributes of God. I was bringing my mind again into something where I was efforting, where I was leading. When Father Thomas Keene started introduce to the, introduce us to the contemplative tradition, it was a, a learning to let go. It was a kind of consenting. It was actually realizing that in my efforting, I've missed what prayer always was. So, Father Richard Hauser, some of you probably know Father Hauser, died in the spring of 2018. He was at Creighton University right down the street from us, um, and Father Hauser was a great old, old Jesuit priest, wrote some great books. Father Hauser taught us that in our Western model of spirituality, it's as if we put God sort of above in an elevated position and, and us in a humiliated position below, and yes, we are separate from God. In the Western model of spirituality, what prayer looks like in, in, in even this sort of hierarchy is I initiate, I ask. And in me asking, God responds. And when God comes down and responds and gives grace, then I am saved. And I think in the Western model of spirituality, we we, we, we more or less kind of function that way generally as Americans. Now, I would say this with most good-hearted Christian folks, if I asked you, do you save yourself? Almost all of them would say no. But if I ask you is your salvation contingent on right belief, right practice? Is it contingent on accepting grace, acknowledging grace, living into the responsibility of grace? Then a lot of us would probably say, yeah, there's something tethered to my sense of salvation that sounds like this. I am given, I am standing in a hallway of options, and these options are all the religions, and so I picked the right one, Christianity. Christianity. I walk into this room and I was like, good Lord, how many options are down this hall? So can I be a Mormon and Christian or Seventh-day Adventist and Christian or Catholic and Christian or can I be Presbyterian and Christian? And again, you have to make another right decision to go down another pathway. And then depending on that pathway's notion of what grace is, you have to consciously and conceptually agree to a situation that says, I am fundamentally flawed and need to be saved. I need something that was a kind of transaction on a cross 2,000 years ago that produces grace, and I have to consciously accept and receive grace. And then I consciously, like I said, live into the responsibility of what that grace looks like. And man, that's a lot of work <laughs> to not save yourself. So Father Richard Hauser says, let's do this. Let's take this notion of God. Let's take this notion of humanity and let's fuse them together so that they're overlapping, but still distinct, still separate. That I'm not God and God isn't me, but I'm not outside of God. And where this overlap takes place, Father Richard Hauser says, that's grace. We don't have to do anything. That absolutely, because this is in, in, in the book with the numbers and the words, that absolutely nothing, 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 nothing we do can separate us from God's love. We're stuck. We can't get out of it, no matter how hard we try. And man, our ego's doing its job to try. Nothing, nothing, nothing can separate us. And in this space, and what Father Hauser says is the biblical model of spirituality, God is always initiating. God is the one initiating. Love is reaching out. It's not our efforting. And we don't have to receive it or not. It's there for us. We're in it. That's grace. So my sense is, is when we start to talk about prayer, and it's like, what is prayer? I, 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 I think we have to sort of rewind all the way back to this very simple sort of concept or understanding of it's simply resting in the embrace of divine love. That's prayer. That's rest for our souls. That's us acknowledging we are not God, which is devastating to our egos and humiliating to what we've parked in our shadows. So what is prayer? I, I, I really think it's that simple. It's resting in the embrace of divine love. So why pray? Now, I, I'm going to ask this question, from what is prayer to why pray, because still some of us are like, okay, cool, resting in the embrace of the divine love. I'll do that. How do I do it? Why do I do it? Why do I need to do it? Why do I even need to show up if it doesn't matter because I can't separate myself from it? Well, I want to sort of be honest, like, it doesn't matter. Like, why pray if it doesn't matter? So I was telling your pastor that um, I was just listening to this podcast. This great Buddhist teacher, he's written, um, he's taught on meditation for 40 years. You've probably read his books. Um, and he was being interviewed about, you know, practice and mindfulness. It was, it was brilliant. I was, I was, I was riveted. And at the end of this, it's maybe about an hour and 10 minutes or so, about 52 minutes into it or something, the interviewer says to this teacher, this meditation teacher, so I got to ask you, because one of my listeners is probably going to sound off and say, look, this joker has been teaching this for 40 years. Why couldn't he hold his marriage together after 20 years? And I was like, whoa. And I was walking my dog in the park. I I hit rewind on that podcast like three times. I was like, "Did he just ask him that, just like that?" And And I and I and I and I and I and I really took the breath out of me because it was just like, "Yeah, my wife is a remarkable human being. Actually, she she spends two to three hours a day in centering prayer. It's it's incredible, but she's still human." And. If we give ourselves to rest in the embrace of the vine and it still doesn't change everything, why does it matter? Well, I think it matters because prayer is the fruit of love. So, so do you all know who Thomas Keating is? Anybody not know Father? Sorry, I, I, my, I don't to sort of like let my normative gaze speak over the heads of the room. Father Thomas Keating, if you don't know, is a Cistercian monk. Um, I think he was 94 when he died um, a year and a half ago. And uh, he was the one who brought centering prayer, which is a non-conceptual, apophatic practice of, of really just resting in a posture of interior solitude, silence, and stillness to the laity, that these old great practices had been locked up in the monasteries and the convents, sort of the, the professional tricks of the, the, the sort of ordered individuals who had taken their vows, and he, and he said, no, let's, let's bring these things into the churches and give these back to the people, Right? So when we met Father Thomas, when he came to Omaha years and years ago, and he introduced this to us, we went to one of his public events. And during the Q&R afterwards, this woman came down, and she was standing at a microphone, actually very similar to the setup. And she started to tell Father Thomas, when I started centering prayer 20 years ago, It changed my life. I was so rooted. I was so grounded. I felt the love of God. And then she said, something happened and something changed. And I would show up to my practice, and it was actually really difficult for me. And it was actually really painful, and it became laborious. And and then it became empty. And then, rather than being the consolation it was, it became a desolation for me. And by the end of this, she's crying. And she's just sobbing. And And I remember just, like, watching Oh, Father Thomas Keating, in his habit, just smiling. And the sadder and more miserable this lady got, it was like the happier he was getting. And I was just like, (laughs) you got to be kidding me, man. And when she stopped and she, she pulled herself together for a second, Father Thomas said, that's the most beautiful thing I've ever heard in my life, that you would experience such sadness, such misery and desolation in a practice and still show up. Every day, every day. He said, That's what love looks like giving of ourselves without expecting something in return. That's the fruit of your prayer, and that's why we pray, because prayer is a fruit of our love. It reminds us that not only are we held in the embrace of love, but that we offer that love back because we can't help but. That it's not reciprocal, it's contagious, it's irresistible, right? So, how do we pray, right? So if we have to ask the questions, what is prayer, why pray, then, then how do we pray? And, and, and the retreats we, 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 we facilitate, we teach practice. Our, our fall retreat in a couple of weeks here, there'll, there'll be almost 70 people that will come and we will introduce them to probably six or seven contemplative practices and, and, and try to give them exercises for their spirituality. Try to create the possibility for a little bit of spiritual muscle confusion and some cross-training to just mix it up enough to help bring some clarity to maybe help encourage some of these folks to move their practice to a discipline. Because it's so funny when we call these things disciplines when we don't practice them. (laughs) Rather than saying, how do we pray and saying, well, here's a few good options. I want to say there's these interior postures that we bring into the how. And the first one is, I think we pray with our doubt. And I think that's the most human in the, in, in, in the most honest way, right? We used to say this in, in 20 years of humanitarian work that we were bearing witness to hope in a world that had legitimate reasons to question the possibility of a good God. My friends still pray prayers that go unanswered. We still do a lot of work with folks who've been trafficked and I do not know how they have the resiliency not to lose their faith. And so it is in doubt that we pray that we bring that hope forward. I think we, 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 we secondly pray with our presence, right? Look, I, I know a lot of you are asking God to, 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 to answer things for, for people in your lives, in your neighborhood, in your community, in your family. Guess what? Just be the answer to the prayer. Show up. Like, make yourself available to be the embodied answer to what you're asking for. And so we pray with our presence, and that's how we live faithfully. But, 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 but the last thing I'll say before we kick this up, I'll open, it, is we pray with our brokenness. And, and I want to be really careful here about words because I'm not speaking of our woundedness. Our woundedness is the shared condition of our humanity. We've been hurt. Some of us have experienced, and I'm sorry, real trauma, real pain. I'm not talking about our woundedness. I'm talking about what we do with that woundedness. And that is the voluntary submission of the possibility that that wounds could be healed, that there is a redemption tucked in them, that the wounds are actually the evidence of hope. And you know this. This is the great trick in the New Testament, right? Every time Jesus is in front of bread, there's four verbs. He takes it, he blesses it, he breaks it, and then he gives it. And every time he gives it, there's a miracle, right? So 4,000 folks, 5,000 folks are fed. He's on the road to Emmaus after the crucifixion. These people don't know it's him. He is the classic trickster. And he's hearing about the story, his own sort of story. And they sit down at a table. He takes the bread. He blesses it. He breaks it and gives it. And then their eyes were open, And then they recognized that it was the Christ. We see, we've been taken by God. We know that. If you are here tonight, it's obvious you are blessed. What is it? that will allow us to be broken because it is in the breaking of even the best of ourselves that we can be given. And that's how prayer heals the world. When we're healed. When we're transformed. When we realize we're not God. And when we learn to rest in the embrace of divine love. It's that simple, right? So you don't have to effort as hard as you have been. You don't have to work as hard as... You, you, you've, 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 you've done your best. You've probably done more than you've needed to. You don't have to read any more books on this. You don't have to track it in your apps anymore. Keep a prayer journal. Just rest in love and let go. And in that consent and in that rest, you will be embraced by something more beautiful than you can imagine. Because this is true. God is not as hard on you as you are on yourself and God wants to love you more than you want to be loved. But it is our resistance, even in our prayers, that doesn't allow for that to take root. So, Cool, we have some time. I'm going to turn over to your pastor, and then we'll see what we can do with a little bit more of this.
0: We are going to take some questions and responses, uh, as Chris said, because he doesn't have all the answers, but he does have responses in a minute. But a couple of, an, of announcements. Uh, from me first. One is that it is really fun to do this series, and one of the joys is that I get to meet amazing people like you. I loved him from the minute I met him, and I think you're awesome. So that was fabulous. I, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I, as a pastor, I'm gonna, I'll get to my announcements in a second. But I've been doing this a while, and I will tell you that when you advertise things that include learning about prayer, people stay away in droves. (laughs) So thank you for coming out for this. Um, And I'll tell you, you hear someone like Chris talk about solitude, stillness, and silence, and doesn't it sound like, oh, I so need some of that? Yeah? So sign up for one of his retreats if you can get in. They're all really busy. Anyway. The next event I want to mention uh, is with Colleen Carol Campbell, uh, November 21st. Uh, It's called Faith and Perfection. To be clear, she will not be encouraging perfection, just to be clear about that. Uh, But join us for that. If you would like to be reminded about upcoming events, um, you can sign up for our email alerts or sign up uh, or like us on Facebook. Um, You can find that in the program here. And then I do want to say a few thank yous. Um, These events, from the beginning, have always been sponsored, underwritten by very generous individuals and organizations. Um, Many of those individuals, I'm not going to read them all, but many of them are here tonight, Um, not the organizations, but the people behind the organizations. Um, And so I just want to say thank you to those of you who helped support this series. You make it possible for countless people to come and hear wonderful speakers like Chris at no cost, which has been a a, a priority of ours from the beginning, to simply open this up to the community. So, you're here tonight thanks to the generosity of those folks. Will you please join me in thanking them? (laughs) Um, Chris said you do not have to read any more books, but he has a book for sale tonight. Um, which is uh, being sold by our friends at Subtext Books, which is an independent bookseller in St. Paul. So thank you, uh, Subtext Books, for helping out with that. Uh, you can pick this up, and he will be signing books following. Um, one of the questions they get repeatedly uh, about, about the series is, How do you get the ideas for speakers? Some of those ideas come from audience members, um, but one very reliable um, individual over the years who has suggested many speakers is Amanda Berger, who's on our staff and is sitting right here. Um, So, Amanda. Amanda is the one who gave me Chris's name. I think they actually have met at a wedding many years ago. Um, I will also say Amanda is the editor of a magazine, a quarterly magazine we put out here at St. Philip Deacon called Inspire. Um, And I believe we have extra copies of that at the welcome counter. I mention that because it features, among other things, an interview uh, Q&A with Chris. So if you do not have a copy of that, please pick one up uh, when you leave tonight. And then, as always, I want to give a word of thanks to Jeff Elstad, our guitarist, who... has been with us from the beginning. Jeff, as always, thank you for your time. All right, uh, we're gonna take some time now for questions and responses. Uh, there are two mics um, to my right and my left, so if you wanna come up and um, ask away, Chris is gonna join us again. So, uh, thank
1: you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so funny to see him behind a lectern, right? And sorry, I, I understand this is like lecture, sorry if that wasn't like like adult l- enough of a lecture.
2: <laughs> Thank you for being here. I drove in from Stillwater. I'm a spiritual director, director a Lutheran and mm-hmm. a spiritual director, and I'm always trying to soak in more goodness, more wisdom, so I can pass that on to my directees, and myself as well. Can you speak to the difference again between contemplation and meditation? That's sure. my question.
1: Well, so, so I think in, in Eastern religious traditions these things are very similar. Um, I think in, in, in Western religious traditions um, the over focus on the mind as an organ of perception becomes kind of what's led with, let's say. And, and so at least how I grew up meditation was a kind of focusing practice specifically rooted in scripture or like I said like the fruits of the spirit Mm -hmm. Let's meditate on a passage from 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 the new testament let's say I think contemplation is is really a kind of gazing and 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 in that gazing again I think with with we bring our western spirituality model into this we we assume that it's us gazing at God when I actually think it's us being seen by love Mm -hmm. it's us being the subject of what is gazing upon what's beautiful in us that we've forgotten. Mm-hmm. And, and so it's a learning to rest in that. It's learning to be held in that. And um, this is hard. This is really hard for us because non-conceptual practices that, right, these this, this, this term apophatic practices, prayers without symbols, without words, without images, it, it, it can be devastating for our religious sense of self because, For a lot of us, we've been taught that we are the initiator, we're the driver. And and what's a bummer about that is is the subtext is we then become God. So when we teach centering prayer, and there's folks who have come out of, let's say, more conservative religious traditions who don't have exposure to apophatic practices, there's always a protest. And the protest is often led with concern. And the concern is something like this. Well, if I do complete, completely open my heart up in this interior posture of solitude, silence, and stillness, and I don't fill it with words or symbols or intentions, what am I opening myself up to? And it's, it's a fair question, but you see, it's, it's not the real question. What the question is saying is, I don't trust God. If I get out of the driver's seat and sit in the back and let God take over, I actually think God's gonna let some Hindu devil, hijacked the vehicle. Like, I'm a better driver, so let me lead this thing. And, and it's sad. It's really sad. It's not fear. It's, yeah. it's that we don't trust God. Yeah. So I, I think it's, this is what contemplation allows for, is to just be seen and to, to really just let go, rest, and consent. Excellent. Thank so, you. Thanks.
3: Hi. Um, my name's Debbie, and um, I'm nervous. Oh. And <laughs> I, I just wanted to tell you that um, I have five kids, mm. and the last one's about ready to leave. And I was, did the Enneagram a long time ago, and I, I wanted to look at it again. And um, it's just such an odd thing, because I downloaded a book and read it, and I didn't pay attention to who the author was. And then I was kind of filling in my days, because I'm kind of lonely right now, mm. And I decided to come tonight, and it was your book. Oh. <laughs> and Thank you. I wanted to come up <laughs> and tell you that I super highly recommend it. It was, it was really a big change for me um, to see the Enneagram um, from a spiritual point of view instead of a secular point. Mm. And it really made a difference to how, mm. um, how I feel about things that I've changed in my life. Mm. And I think you did a great job tonight, Aww. too. And I'm kind of wondering, you know, as I read this anagram, and it just fit me so well, is that, are these things, I mean, there's some negativities to it, right? Or, I mean, if you want to call them that, are these things that we should just say, you know, that's just how I am? Or are these hmm. things that we should kind of try to change about ourselves? I yeah. guess that's my question. But yeah. I, again, also want to really recommend that book because oh. it was awesome, so.
1: Thanks for saying that. Um, yeah, that's a great question. So, I know this isn't an Enneagram event, sorry. And in, in, in my real life, like basically Enneagram, Enneagram takes over everything, and I'm not, I'm, I'm okay with that. Uh, I'm tr- what I'm trying to do, actually, is um, maybe bring a different tone into the, the conversation uh, around what your type is. So, I'm sorry, if you don't know anything about the Enneagram, like, uh, let's just say it like this it starts with the sorry the enneagram of personality a 47 year old overlay to a larger ancient process teaching the enneagram of personality essentially shows us the nine archetypes for human character structure let's say and they call these types and then they number these one to nine well well when this leaked in the early 70s it leaked through some jesuits who weren't allowed to speak about it one of them had actually signed a confidentiality agreement with his teacher saying i won't share this um but you know this once you learn the enneagram you're typing everybody and that's the point it's not about typing everybody it's about working on your own soul your own self your own essence well when the jesuits leaked this in the 70s and 80s like they were brutal like they they, they essentially showed you this through the shape of your tragic flaw, through your sin tendency. And so it was communicated very negatively to a lot of us in the old days. And, and this is why it's kind of humiliating and devastating for some of us to be typed or to come across the material on our type. What I'm trying to do here is, is reframe this around compassion, saying, you know what, you have a type. And one of my teachers says this, Russ Hudson says this, you have a type, but you're not your type. Well, one of my other teachers says, imagine your type not as your personality, but as the cell where you've incarcerated your essence. And I'm not interested in decorating my prison walls. I want to turn them translucent so that's what's beautiful in me can shine forward. And I think that's the hard work with the Enneagram is seeing what's beautiful in each of us and, and learning to have compassion for ourselves and remembering that innocence that was lost in this so-called childhood wound. And so... So Sleeping At Last, actually Hustle is one of my love languages, um, is a musician. And if you don't know Sleeping At Last, this is maybe the best gift I'll give you tonight. Um, Chase it down. If you've ever watched Grey's Anatomy, you've probably heard his music. It's beautiful. But him and I recorded nine podcasts on each of the types. So there's a 90-minute podcast for every type. And we're really trying to be compassionate with it. Like, here's how to understand yourself in relationships. Here's how you are misunderstood. Here's how to learn to listen to the people in your life. Or type one or type two or type three. But um, yeah, I would say, so sorry, this is the long way around the head to get to the nose. I would say that when there is a sense of negativity that comes forward as you relate to your type, you, you have to learn to laugh at it. And you have to learn to laugh at your predictable patterns. Oh, I'm doing that again. <laughs> I always do that. I've been doing that different ways for the last 50 years of my life. I'm gonna keep doing this. Um, and you have to learn to laugh at it. And, and, and my spiritual director, every time I meet with him, it's basically a lesson in Latin. He talks about why humor is so crucial to our spirituality, right? It starts with this word humus. This is a Latin word for, for ground or earth. And this is the same word where we get the word humanity. So I get that. My humanity comes from the ground. This is From dust we came, to dust we shall return. This is why our our brothers and sisters who are Muslim touch their head to the ground five times a day to remind themselves of that. So humanity, of course it comes from earth. Well, humility also comes from that same word. So yes, I'm not God. So from the earth, my humanity comes, and I am not God, and I live into the humility of that. Well, it also is the word um, for humor, and you see, if we can't find a sense of humor about the humility of our humanity, then we're, we're going to be stuck, and we're going to beat ourselves up, and it's actually not going to be a super pleasant run. So you just got to laugh at yourself. Like, you just got to look at, at your type structure and learn to laugh at yourself. It's like little kids, man. They're, they're so obvious, and it's kind of cute and funny. And that's what I think the Enneagram also shows us, is that there's an inner child in all of us that's trying to act like an adult. So...
0: <laughs> okay, well, no more questions. No, don't, don't go. Oh, we have another question. Okay, that's fine.: I'm going to just go ahead and call last question, and then there will be 12 other people that are going to stand up right over here. <laughs> but let's make this the last question. So I have a vague, half cocked idea that I don't know how this will come out.
2: Um, So I grew up in a conservative, evangelical, Western Christian tradition. Uh, I've been in the process of becoming Orthodox for about three years. Um, And a lot of it is because of apophatic theology and ways of thinking. And, um, And so I'm wondering, as I still interact with the majority of people in my life that are in that world, and as I find that I try to talk about things as I've moved away from it and... And like you were even talking about, you know, the ego and the mind and, and that meditation and just resting in divine love can be a process. Can you just speak to how, how do you talk to people that are in that framework or what is your, what would be advice for me um, to myself? Cause I, cause I still go into my head all the time and try mm-hmm. to like, I'll try to convince people through my ego and my mind of apophatic Thinking and theology, yeah. so um, can you just speak to that and how maybe contemplation, and meditation, and centering prayer can maybe be a yeah. answer.
1: Yeah. Um, so two things come. Two things come come to mind, um, and the first is this. So sorry, to, to, sorry, I'm going to rewind back to the enneagram. Just one last time. Uh, if you if you if you remember the basic building blocks of the Enneagram, it speaks of these organs of perception, our mind, our heart, and our gut. And these are what are called intelligence centers in the Enneagram, right? So our thoughts, our feelings, our intuitions are actually, it's actually your, if you know where your type sits in the head, the heart, or the body, you know actually the easiest place and the easiest way for you to practice discernment, right? So some of us actually have to learn to trust our thoughts. Others of us really have to learn to trust our feelings. I think one of my little sisters is a type two. That's a heart type. And I remember adults telling her when she was a kid, don't trust your feelings, think that out. Well, guess what? If you're a heart type, heart-centered person, your feelings are gonna tell you something that your mind can't. And then some of us are in our bodies. We're, we're instinctive. We have this intuition. And, and you see, again, there's a kind of bias at least in Western religious traditions, for the head to sort of be what leads how we frame some of these conversations or experiences or, or prayers. So when I, when I introduce the intelligence centers in the Enneagram, the head, the heart, and the body, what I, I try to encourage people to do is identify where you primarily process and perceive reality and go with it and see what it can offer you and, and learn to grow in fluency with that organ of perception as a place to practice discernment. However, it's the over identifying with any one of these that also keeps us stuck. And so the real hard work is integrating all of these organs of perception and bringing them into alignment. Okay. And this is what Gurdjieff, one of the the old sort of trickster enneagram teachers said that unless all three of these centers are brought into awareness, you've not had a spiritual experience. So, when I'm introducing this at workshops and stuff, I, I usually um, do a throwback to The Wizard of Oz, right? So, is, so, I have to ask, has anybody not seen The Wizard of Oz or read the book? <laughs> Co. So, good, super good Americans. Uh, refresher goes like this there's a little white girl in Kansas who gets knocked out cold in a storm and she falls into a dream. And when she comes into awareness of the dream, everything is wild. It's tricked out, it's magical. There's monkeys with wings, there's witches flying around on bikes, there's folks singing songs, you can eat the flowers. It's wild. Super exciting for a quick minute, but it gets worn out pretty fast and all she wants is to go home. So she starts her way and and, and essentially she begins a pilgrimage. We know this, pilgrimages are one way journeys of intention and the intention is a homecoming, to remember, to go back to where she came from. But she gets interrupted by three people, right? There's a, a tin man who, 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 who's afraid he's lost his heart. There's a scarecrow who doesn't think he has his mind. And there's a lion who does not think he has courage. And my sense is these are her centers of intelligence. Because if you take a Jungian dream analysis overlay to Oz, right? And in Jungian dream analysis, everybody who shows up in your dream is part of your disconnected subconscious trying to message to you while you're sleeping what you won't listen to when you're awake. Well, then it's her. It was always her. And she has to help the lion, the ten the, the men and the scarecrow. Remember, they always had what they needed. It was never lost. So I think this is maybe the first thing is learning to integrate these three aspects, these three organs of perception, these three ways of perceiving and processing reality in our spirituality. And yes, honoring the mind without severing it from the heart or the body. And this is why in our... In our in, in our very posture of prayer, as little kids were taught, close your eyes, bow your head, and fold your hands. Well, the Orthodox folks teach us this. We're putting the mind in our heart by bowing our head and holding it together in the body. You see, we're bringing these three things together, right? So I think that's the first thing that comes to mind. second thing that comes to mind is it, it, contemplative practice is... Um, Let's say this, contemplative spirituality is learning to access things with other organs of perception that we generally don't reach for, right? So the examine, you've probably heard the Ignatian examine. The Ignatian examine is a, a way of using memory to pray. Um, there's all these sort of different ways of, of, of bringing another way into seeing what was unseen before. So I, I sometimes illustrate it like this, and actually I tell the story in my, my book my spiritual director, this man I've been meeting with for the last 15 years, he's a scrappy old um, 79-year-old Irish priest. And uh, when he was nine years old, he lost his sight. Well, I had been a bad directee, um, sorry to the spiritual directors in here, and was skipping for a minute. And uh, saw that Father Gilk, my, my, my spiritual director, was giving a retreat. And I thought, cool, I'll go on retreat and I'll sort of catch up. Catch up on all these missed, missed sessions. And, uh, and it was a silent retreat, and this is kind of how bad I am, because Father Gilk can't see, I just thought, silent retreat, I'm going to slip in, he's not going to know that I'm there, I'm going to slip out, <laughs> and then I'll schedule an appointment and say, yeah, you know, on retreat when you said this, and he'll think, oh yeah, this guy's not slacking. So uh, a couple days before the retreat, Father Gilk's secretary calls me up, she's like, hey, Father Gilk, notice your name on the list, and I was like, oh man, she's like, do you mind driving him to the retreat center? And I was like, super duper, I'm totally going to catch up on spiritual direction in the car. And uh, so we, I pick him up at the community center where he lives. This is back in the day where I had GPS on the, you know, suction cup on the, on the, uh, the windshield. And as we pull out, the voice goes, in two blocks, turn left. Father Yoke goes, what's that? I go, this is the GPS that's going to help us get into the monastery. He's like, oh, that'll be interesting. And I'm like, what? Well, like 70-minute drive, Father Yoke actually corrected the GPS's directions multiple times. And he was always right. No, 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 keep going straight. And it was shortcut. I was like, what? So retreat was great. Load up the car on the way back. Father Guilt goes, hey, you won't need the GPS. I'll get us back home. And I was like, what? My spiritual director, I'm gonna do what he says. So we start driving. And uh, it was remarkable. He rolled down the window. And I was like, oh, you want me to turn the air conditioner on? He's like, oh, no, no, no. There's some train tracks over here. And I love to listen to the trains come by. And as he was saying that, here comes this Union Pacific train just blowing past. And I was like, what in the world? Drive another 10 minutes. He's like, oh, there's a tractor manufacturer up here, this, 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 this lot where they sell, they sell tractors. Tell me, what, tell me what's, can you describe what's in the lot? Can you tell me what color are there? And as he's saying this, I look up and it's right there. I'm just like, what is this guy doing? We're on this old country freeway. And he goes, in a couple, in a couple minutes here, you're going to come under a bridge and I want you to take the, the ramp. And we we're going under the bridge as he's saying. So I'm just like, what is going on with this guy? Like, weirding me out. Drop him off. I go home. Felina goes, how was the retreat? I was like, how was the retreat? You're not going to believe the ride home. And I think about that ride home all the time as this is what we're trying to say yes to in our contemplative practice. Using organs that we generally don't to find our way back to ourself. Like, being surprised at getting there a different way. And so if it's our head, and if that's where your dominant center is, you honor that. But man, learn to integrate all of them. Learn to bring your heart and your intuition and instincts into your practice. And you'll find your way in effortless, more surprising, and I think more mysterious ways. And that's for all of us who grew up conservative. What we need to learn is that when we're not open to mystery, um, then we've lost a sense of adventure. That we think what we figured out is actually right and nothing could be better. And man, that's no way to live. And I think the contemplative allows for mystery to be, to be the lane, right? So I don't know. That's why it's Q I I don't have the answers. But I, I just think like learning to bring these three centers in, and allowing us to find different ways home is is, is what we all what we all want, and, and, and it sounds like that's what you're, you're you're doing and asking for. So thank you. Don't don't applaud yet. <laughs>
0: um, thank you. Um, and again, I I don't want to cut this off, but I don't see other people at the mics. Um, Chris is going to stick around, and again, sign books. I'm sure is happy to visit and chat with you out in the narthex. Um, before we get there though I want to say again thank you to all of you for coming out truly um, I'm glad you were here I hope you enjoyed it and Chris thank you very much for spending some time even though you your plane got in a little later than we expected and we've got a little gift for Chris it's a, a granite plaque that says with thanks to Chris Hewart's for bringing faith to life we mm. thank you so very much yeah. thank, thank you very thank thank you. much thank